Good morning, everybody. It is a uh, real privilege to be here with you, and uh, um, thank you, Pastor Jeff, for uh, allowing me to share a little bit about Star of Hope and share a little bit from the Word of God. Um, if you guys do have your Bibles with you, um, I am going to be sharing from Philippians chapter 2 this morning, um, so you can go ahead and turn there. But while you're doing that, before we dig in, um, uh, I, I am really just so thankful for the Echo Lake Church community and uh, the longtime partnership that has uh, uh, been in existence long before I came to Star of Hope. Uh, some of you may have maybe met uh, my predecessor, Jay Sinclair, before uh, years ago, and uh, uh, Jay is still right now connected with Star of Hope, but it's just been uh, a privilege to, uh, to come here and to meet you guys and to see what God is doing and how God is working here uh, in your community. And um, as, as Jeff said, I'm serving as the executive director at Star of Hope, and um, for some of you that may not be as familiar with Star of Hope Ministries, um, I want to give you a little bit of some background on what Star of Hope does. So sometimes, if we were in a smaller group, I might say, what, what, I might ask people, what does Star of Hope do? And most often, one of the answers that I get from folks is, you guys do boxes of love. Has anybody here ever done a box of love before? You know what I'm talking about, right? You guys are the box of love people, and, and that's part of what we do, but I want to give you a little bit of a bigger picture and also share a little bit about what really I'm most passionate about with Star of Hope. We've, we've been serving in the city of Patterson for 109 years. I always make, make it clear for people I haven't been there that long. Um, but Star of Hope has been there for 109 years, and lately we've been using this uh, statement to describe our work, which is Star of Hope exists to foster holistic transformation among our neighbors, and we accomplish this through partnership with neighbor churches and community leaders. And in short, what that really means is that we serve churches and organizations as they serve the city. So we have a, a network of about 75 churches and organizations that we give the boxes of love to. We help with resources because they are the ones strategically positioned in neighborhoods to be able to build relationship with folks in need. Um, ultimately, as, as you guys probably know, a box of love is not even about the food right? The food is really just a tool. It's a resource to help build reconciling relationships, reconciling people on this level, but ultimately reconciling them on this level with God. So uh, to sum all of that up, one of, our, uh, uh, one of the ways I like to explain this to folks is through our core values. Like a lot of nonprofits, we have mission, vision, core values. And core value number one for us, as you can see on the screen, is uh, the local church, we believe, we support the local church, believing it to be God's chosen agent to nurture people and to transform society. I tell people all the time, the uh, Western nonprofit model, that's only something that's really been in existence for, I don't know, 100, 150 years or so. But the church has been around for thousands of years and thousands, from, thousands of years from now, if the Lord should tarry, uh, the nonprofits won't exist, but the church is still going to be there, right? That's God's design. That's his plan. That's his purpose. So we want to be about building the church in our community. So how do we do this? As we 
address the issues and the challenges in our community? Well, we do this with physical resources. Like I said, boxes of love. We're getting ready for our backpack initiative in August. We do toys at Christmas. Throughout the year, we have uh, a weekly food ministry where we're uh, packing and distributing literally thousands of boxes on a yearly basis uh, uh, for churches so that they can, uh, uh, they can better serve uh, their community. But um, uh, uh, we do this with trainings throughout the year. We have a leadership development initiative where we're scholarshipping for the Global Leadership Summit. We're doing seminars throughout the years, helping churches to build their capacity, investing in the key leaders from the community. We have what we refer to as our StarTech Institute, where we have a job training program, a job readiness program. Uh, we have uh, uh, we, just this month, we launched the StarTech Entrepreneur Academy, helping business leaders from the community have a, a biblical understanding of how to be an, under, uh, 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 an entrepreneur and to, to develop the right biblical mindsets around business and work and all of these things. Um, we have a summer camp program. I could go on because there's a pretty long list, but several, uh, uh, a while back, I was having a cup of coffee with a local pastor, and he said to me, he said, what excites you the most about what you're doing at Star of Hope? And that was an interesting question because I can get, I can get a little bit passionate sometimes about the stuff that we do. Um, and I had to think about it for a second and I responded to him and I said, what excites me the most, what gets me the most excited is seeing churches working together, building relationships functioning as a healthy body the way God intended it to be. And that really brings me to uh, core value number two, which is this idea of partnership for Star of Hope. And it says, we promote positive partnerships among churches, organizations, pastors, and community leaders. And this is really uh, uh, important for what we do. And on top of that even, core value number three is this idea of unity. We seek the unity that God desires in the body of Christ. And as we I kind of transition here from talking about Star of Hope to really talking, speaking from the scriptures, right? This is what Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 2. And I think there's some important lessons for us. And this is exciting for me when we talk about unity. There's important lessons for us here today, this morning. So when you think of the Echo Lake Church family, right? I want you to think of how you guys operate here as a church family, but I also want you to think outside the four walls and how uh, the, the bigger picture of the body of Christ, not just uh, the individual churches, but the many expressions of the one church of Jesus Christ, right? The church of Patterson, the church of Passaic County or, or uh, uh, West Milford or wherever you might uh, live. I want you to look at this with a little bit with two sets of eyes, right? Kind of the internal lens and the external lens as well, right? So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to, you know what? I better do this before I get in trouble from Spencer, right? 
Uh, before I dig into that, I'm sorry, I forgot about this, but uh, we do have a little bit of resources. Unfortunately, I forgot to, uh, I, for, I, they, I thought they were in my car this morning and they weren't, but in the back we have uh, some newsletters if you guys do want to grab something like that. And if you open it up, there's a, uh, a, a kind of funny looking guy in there. You can read about uh, Spencer Scott, our, our, one of our newest uh, staff members, but I do have some of that in the back and I'd love to talk to you guys uh, at any point after this service and, and just share more. Love to have, and even invite you to come down to Star of Hope as well um, and, and visit and see a little bit more what we do. But let's dig into uh, Philippians chapter two. So I'm going to read uh, starting in uh, verse one. I'm going to read through our, the first 11 uh, verses and then I'll pray and then we'll dig in. Sound okay? Uh, and I'm reading from the New King James Version. Philippians chapter two says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any fellowship of love, or if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross." Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for these truths found in your word, Lord. We thank you for uh, your Holy Spirit that can speak to us powerfully through your word, Lord. So I pray that you would give me your words to say. I pray that you would give us listening ears. Lord, I pray that you would uh, just meet each one of us right where we're at this morning. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you're familiar with the book of Philippians... Paul finished up chapter one speaking with the church in Philippi really about some, some difficult things, how to deal with difficulties from outside sources. He said some hard stuff. In verse 29 of chapter one, he said, to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not just to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, right? That's not necessarily always a popular sermon topic, right? But Paul leads with that saying, there's going to be difficulties, right? This could be a sermon in and of itself, but he's telling the church in Philippi how to stand strong against external conflicts. And now in chapter two, he's telling them, he's talking about how to act against internal challenges. Anybody ever had challenges in their family, right? And the same thing exists in a church family as well. And his appeal to them here in chapter two is an appeal that's very powerful. It's an appeal to unity. 
but not just unity. He tells them how to move towards unity. And what I call this, I I, I titled this sermon, I never do that, but the title of this sermon is actually in my Bible. It's right at the top of chapter two. It's in the, the title there for chapter two, Unity Through Humility. And I want to talk about how we can uh, move towards this, this greater unity for us here as the body of Christ. And in verse 1, he gives us the foundation for this all. He actually gives us four rhetorical questions. This means that it's questions that we should already assume. If we consider ourselves followers of Jesus, if we're part of the body of Christ, he says, okay, if there is any consolation uh, uh, of Christ. In in 2 Thessalonians, Paul says that God loves us and has given us an everlasting consolation and good hope by by grace. So he's asking this question as if like, of course this exists, right? Right? Spurgeon says the the Holy Spirit consoles, but Christ is the consolation. And Paul's asking this, assuming that they know this. He says, if there's any comfort of love, 2 Corinthians says that God is the God of all comforts. The Holy Spirit is described as our comforter. There's no circumstance that is beyond God's comfort in particular, the comfort of love. This word is the word, uh, the Greek word paraklesis. And the idea of this comfort in the New Testament, it's more than just kind of a soothing sympathy. It has the idea of, of that, but also strengthening and encouraging and helping, making strong. And it's this idea that uh, uh, the Latin word for comfort is fortis, where you get fortify, right? It means brave. And the love of God gives us that comfort and that strength and that encouragement and that bravery. If there's any fellowship of the Spirit, he says, this is the Greek word koinonia. It means sharing things in common. These are are things that are to be assumed for us as followers of Jesus Christ, as, as the family of God. Of course, there is the fellowship of the Spirit. And lastly, he says, if there's any affection and mercy, his rhetorical question assumes that every Christian knows about the affection and the mercy of God. And he mentions these things in such a manner that it suggests to us it should all be obvious to us as Christians, right? It's almost as if he's saying, if water is wet and if fire is hot and if rocks are hard, then this, right? The point is this, the foundation of what Paul is about to say here is found in the assumption of these four things in our lives. And he's about to challenge the church at Philippi and the church today to live in unity. And it's based on this assumption that we've experienced these things already. That we've received Christ's consolation and comfort of love. That we have fellowship with the Spirit of God and through the Spirit of God. And that we know something of God's affection and mercy. Because Paul says, therefore then, fulfill my joy. If these things are true, then 
there ought to, or there is a challenge for us. That's where he says, therefore, in verse two, he says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. We started with the foundation of unity, and now we move to, in verse two, a description of unity. Like-minded, the same love, one accord, one mind. If you read the book of Acts, giving an account of the birth of the church and the growth of the church after Jesus' ascension into heaven, one of the interesting commentaries made several times is that they were in one accord. They had all things in common. They had one mind. And this is the picture that they knew they were all in this together. And this is the type of unity that Jesus actually prayed for, for you and for me. Did you know that? John chapter 17, Jesus' final prayer before going to the cross, I'd encourage you to check it out for homework. You didn't know you were going to get homework today, did you? He prays for his disciples and he says that they would be one. And then it says he prays for all the believers that would follow after them. That's you and me. That they would be one as we are one. The Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He could have prayed all sorts of stuff for them. He could have prayed all sorts of stuff for us. But the number one thing on Jesus' heart before going to the cross was that they would be one. And this is the type of unity that Jesus prayed for us. One of the things that excites me about my role at Star of Hope is to be a part of a group of of pastors and leaders from around the city leading a movement uh, around this idea of building a John chapter 17 type of unity in the city of Patterson. And we've done things like prayer luncheons and breakfast and monthly prayer fellowships, leading and organizing the National Day of Prayer just last week, prayer summit retreats, prayer walks, It's a difficult challenge striving for this kind of unity, but I know how important it was to Jesus, and I know how it pleases our Father in heaven. There's nothing better for me as a father. I've got three kids. They're 11, 13, and 15. And sometimes there's conflict, right? But there's nothing better than when I come home at the end of a long day or something like that, and I come home and they're all getting along. They're all working on something together. They're enjoying each other. There's, there's unity amongst my children, and I think it's the same thing for the heart of God when he sees us functioning in that way as well. And it's the heart of Paul, right? Paul says, fulfill my joy as your spiritual father, right? Paul's joy will be fulfilled if they're living in unity. Christ's prayer is that we're living in unity. So the question is for us briefly, how? How can we begin as individuals or as a church family to live in unity? How can we be like-minded? How can we live in one accord? Maybe you're saying, Pastor Matt, okay, I understand unity is important. How do we do this? Verse three, it says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, 
but also for the interests of others. We've seen the foundation of unity, a description of unity, and now we see a prescription of humility. He says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition. This is us wanting to make ourselves look great. It's the idea that this is not a competition, right? How often does the church or people in the church, we, we fall short. We think it's about being cooler or smarter or brighter or having the next best thing. We want ourselves to look great. We want to look important. We want to be more spiritual looking than the person sitting next to us. It's not a competition. Paul found it important 2,000 years ago to say, this is not, it's not about you, right? It's, it is interesting he said selfish ambition because ambition in and of itself is not necessarily bad, right? But selfish ambition is a different story. That's a different kind of motivation. But he says... In lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than yourself. He says also, let nothing be done through conceit. So if selfish ambition is trying to make ourselves look good, conceit is we already think we're good, right? We already think we're, we're the bee's knees, as they might say, right? We think we're great. We have this, this excessively favorable opinion of ourselves. And, and these first two things, they deal with our motivation, our selfish motivation, our selfish pride, because we are so quick sometimes to play the comparison game. And this kind of pride afflicts all of us. C.S. Lewis writes about pride and humility and he made this insightful comment. I think it's almost prophetic when he says, uh, we say people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. And it's this idea that we want to lift ourselves up naturally. This comes to us as humans very easily. The antidote, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. This is a huge step, right? Philippians 2.2, uh, two, two, if we really want to fulfill that kind of joy, we need to esteem others better than ourselves. One preacher puts it this way, you want to be great in the kingdom of God, learn to be the servant. Don't just look at your own needs, look at the needs of others around you. C.S. Lewis again puts it this way, he says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Sometimes even in our pride, we can say so much, woe is me, oh, I'm so, I'm nothing, I'm nothing. And you know what there's a lot of in there? I, right? It's all about me. But true humility, I believe, is this is the Matt version of this. True humility means we know what's true. We know who God says we are and what he has created us to be and to do, and no more or no less. We're rooted in, in our being created in the image of God. But there's this beautiful thing that happens where if you 
consider others better than yourselves and I consider you above me and you consider me above you, then we all of a sudden have this community where everybody is looked up to and nobody is looked down upon. And if we truly desire the unity that God desires here in your church family or in the church of America today, we need to have this healthy dose of humility amongst us. What would it look like if we took just these two verses to heart? What kind of change would it make in our church families? What would it look like? Well, let me give you an example of what it looks like because we've seen the foundation, the description, a prescription. I never have sermons that all alliterate like this, so I get excited about it. But the last one here is a depiction of humility. Verse five, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. What greater depiction of humility for us than what Christ did on the cross. We just celebrated this a couple of weeks ago on Good Friday and ultimately Easter Sunday. But imagine this, being in the form of God, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. It's like he was saying he, he knew, he knew he was God He knew he had every claim to the throne of God in all of the universe, right? He had all of that, yet he made himself nothing. He made himself of no reputation. He took the form of a servant. I'd encourage you to check out John chapter 13 on what that servanthood looks like. Him washing his disciples' feet. You remember that picture? He went around to every single one of them, even to Judas who was about to betray him. A humble servant, he humbled himself. He was humble that even just in taking the form of a man, right? He had humble beginnings, born into a barn, into poverty. He was humble in his obedience to God and his submission to the Holy Spirit. He was humble in submitting to a death on the cross. Crucifixion was such a a shameful death that this was not even permitted for Roman citizens. A victim of crucifixion was considered by the Jews to be particularly or especially cursed by God. This was like Jesus stepping down to the very bottom rung of the ladder from the throne of God. He came all the way down to the most despised death of all, a condemned, cursed criminal on the cross. And I love what Paul says here where he says, even the death of the cross. This shows that there's no limit Hear me, if you don't hear anything else, hear this. There is no limit to what God will do to demonstrate his love and his saving power to man. There's no limit to it. 
Spurgeon, again, puts it this way. He says, the lower he stoops to save us, the higher we ought to lift him in our adoring reverence. Blessed be his name. He stoops and he stoops and he stoops. And when he reaches our level and becomes a man, he still stoops and stoops and stoops lower and deeper yet. It's a powerful picture of the humility of Christ that we ought to be able to, as image bearers of Christ, display ourselves. And here's the beautiful thing, I think, about what happens in the kingdom of God. God's economy is so backwards from what we think, right? As we lay in this plane real quickly, in uh, uh, verse 9, it says... Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We see this depiction of humility and ultimately the exaltation of the Lord. You know, we, we think we want to be made great, but in God's economy, it's a completely different picture, right? We think we need to lift ourselves up, puff ourselves up, get noticed, put ourselves in the limelight. I mean, guys, our culture invented something called a selfie. If that doesn't tell you anything about how we operate in our minds, right? But God's economy says this, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. James 4.10. Matthew 18, Jesus said, Whoever humbles himself like a little child will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 1 Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. And here in Philippians chapter 2, we see God remaining true to his promises through the humbled Christ ultimately being exalted, right? His name, he's been perfectly humbled. Now he is exalted as the name that is above all names to the point where every tongue will confess, every knee will bow, that Jesus Christ is Lord. In closing, just a quick challenge for us. This, this individual challenge, but also this corporate challenge, I want to draw your attention back to verse 5, which says, let, your, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this mind, he tells us what we ought to do with this information, with this picture, with this call to unity. What do we do? Put on the mind of Christ. Start to think like him about others. If you're sitting here today and you call yourself a Christian, you're identifying yourself, you're saying, I'm with Jesus. Then understand, according to this passage, for us Corporately or individually, as a body of believers, as a church family, we need to all get on the same page. We need to have the same kind of thinking. Jesus' heart's cry, guys, 
was for us to be one, to be living as one in unity. I believe Paul's argument from this passage is that we need to follow the example of our Lord, an example of humility. What does that mean for us individually? We need to die to ourselves daily. I'll close with a verse from Matthew chapter 16. You may be familiar with it. Where Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's that willingness for us, guys, to set aside who we are, to become a servant to others, to make ourselves of no reputation, not esteeming ourselves more highly than we ought, but just considering ourselves privileged to be servants of Jesus Christ. Amen?